Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. All right, my special guest today is a Hollywood veteran sound mixer and has worked on numerous blockbuster films throughout his career, including Hunt for Red October, Days of Thunder, Ghost, Wayne's World, Good Morning Vietnam, and The Godfather Part Three. He's worked and taught in all areas of production and post-production sound, and he's currently teaching the next generation of filmmakers. He also lives in Norway. Please welcome Greg Kurta. Hello, Michael. Welcome, Greg. Well, thanks for having me. Now, Greg, we usually start the show by asking what's in your audio kit, but you've kind of stepped away from that these days as an educator. So take us back 30 years and talk to us about what gear you were using back then. Okay, let's see. So that would be the 80s. And I think my feature kit was a Cooper CS106 as the primary mixer. And everybody had just gone to DAT. So I bought myself an HHB, you know, 1000 plus or whatever the, the model number is. And, um, and I really loved it. Most people were still using Nagras, but I, I really liked it. Electrosonic 185s. Okay, VHF, swinging. Since I went back to production when I when I went to Hawaii, I really couldn't use Sheps. It was way too humid for that. So the MKH series in Sennheisers, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s is what, what I mostly used. And I had some uh, COS 11 labs. That's basically it. Now, uh, as you're teaching students today, uh, what are they learning on? Sound devices, mixers, mostly all bag, all bag stuff. We don't have a feature rig put together, but 302s we have. We have some mix pre-10s. I've got some MM1s, the little single channel things. Those are really good, too. I like those a lot. Running mostly Rode MTG3s on the, for the shotguns. Sennheiser G3s, of course, with the stock mics. Um <laughs> And let's see, I've got a couple of F8s, Zoom F8s, and the controllers. And um, for multicam stuff, we just moved to that new Zoom L12, the live track, which is pretty swinging. It's, it's pretty cool. And the kids, the kids are figuring it out, so it's okay. And then for the interior mics, uh, we've got a bunch of Octavas with all the, all the capsules. So we just mix and match. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about how you first got into the film industry. Okay, that's that's interesting. One of my dad's best friends was a big picture and sound editor in, in Chicago at the time. And his big gig at that time was uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. You know, most of your audience probably is not old enough to remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, but it was the original nature show. And so he was looking for a new apprentice and he asked my dad to, gee, do you think, uh, you think Greg would be interested? And I was like 17 at the time. And, and he said, oh, I don't sure this sounds cool. He would want you to ask him. So uh, he asked me and I said, film business. Yeah, 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 sure. That sounds cool. You know, 17, I don't know anything. This guy's name was Jim Bourgeois. What a great man. And he, I mean, he taught me and he just took me under his wing and, and taught me a bunch of stuff. We worked on that show. We started getting a little, we got a lot of commercials and um, mostly 16, uh, some national spots in 35, but it was all film. I learned how to, I learned how to go out and record effects and stuff on Inagra with the 415, I think they had it though, at that time. Uh, we had a 415, a 405 and, and an 815. You know, so the three sizes. And that was a that was a gas. So I, I really had learned to be an editor. 
by the time I was 20 or so, I started having my own clients. He gave me, you know, some clients. We became partners and stuff. So, and then, you know, at some point I decided that I wanted to go uh, see if I could play with the big boys. So it, it really wasn't sound at all. It was, it was, it was picture cutting. That was my first thing. When you decided to go sound, how did you get into the industry? <laughs> kind of by chance. I had I moved to, to L.A. and I was uh, playing in a band. I'm a bass player as well. The guy who was financing the band, turns out he was financing it through uh, uh, various illicit activities uh, in Orange County. And, uh, and he, he got popped. And uh, so the financing stopped. And um, I went to a temp agency, and this temp agency kind of specialized in, in placing musicians and such in studio gigs. Well, my first temp gig was at uh, Columbia, uh, Warner Brothers on the Burbank lot. And it was, I was the, the temporary secretary for Robert Town. And I don't, I don't know if you remember who Robert Town was. He's, uh, he's a writer. Uh, he wrote Chinatown, Two Jakes, a, a bunch of stuff. But he was out of town for, the, for two weeks. His secretary was out of town for two weeks. And um, so I sat in. The only thing I did for two weeks is every day I got one phone call, and that was from the secretary asking me if there were any calls. <laughs> Other than that, nothing happened. But then, then I transferred to Disney, and I got, a, I got a temp job at Disney in the computer tape library. And eventually that led to begging and pleading to get an interview for the mailroom. Okay? I mean, you have no idea how hard it is to get into the mailroom. <laughs> So from the mailroom, I, I got to be friends with the secretary in the sound department, and she really liked me for some reason. And the, there was a spot opening up, entry-level Y15, I think the union classification is. And the guy who interviewed me for it was from Chicago and knew Jim Bourgeois. Right place, right time. Lucky break. Combined. So And so then I started in the sound department at Disney and, you know, and, and learned the ropes there. What was the early days? Like you, you started off, you were in the analog world. And uh, tell us a little bit about how that prepared you for going into the digital world. Well, <laughs> first of all, you have to understand that the, the film business is very slow to adopt new technology, much slower than, for instance, the music business, the record industry. They want the newest, latest, greatest all the time. That's really changing now, but in the old days, it wasn't. If you had something that worked, you stuck with it until it didn't work anymore because you can't take the chance, right? So when I went to Disney, for instance, on the dialogue stage, they were still recording dialogue sessions direct to disc, cutting vinyl. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was pretty amazing, actually. The place had all was full of all RCA, old RCA film recorders. And the the film, uh, sound film, is really like just like tape, uh, magnetic tape, but it has sprocket holes. It's shaped like film and it runs, it, you know, with the, with the picture on, on these these machines. So, you know, we ran that for for a long time. And then eventually we got to the point where um there was a guy in LA and he created a, um, a new kind of a controller. And this controller allowed you to sync film projectors with tape machines, you know, simply based so you could sync, sync with a free running machine. This was like, you know, this was genius stuff back then. <laughs> we take it for granted now, but it, this was genius stuff. So the, the projector, he had a little rig that went on the projector and it sent, he converted the tack pulses into time code information. And then with a series of links synchronizers, you can synchronize your, your 24 track. And I had a, I had a Studer uh, A800, I think, and this was like the state of the art at the time, it had Dolby SR in the drawers and, and just a beautiful machine, self-aligning. I mean, what a, what a great machine. So towards the end of my time, this was at Paramount after I had left Disney and gone to Paramount. We experimented with a, a few things. We experimented with a Synclavier system for like two or three weeks. And it was very difficult. It wasn't set up right. There were a couple of DAWs there at the time, just starting to come in. Pro Tools was just beginning and wasn't quite accepted yet. 
And I can't remember the name of the one that they were using to cut dialogue, but they had just switched over. And this was late 80s. So it was kind of it was kind of strange. And I never really in that phase of, of my career, I never truly got out of analog. That didn't happen till I left town and started production mixing again. And then I had to get kind of get, catch up and get into the digital world. It was interesting. You know, people didn't quite know what to think about it. It was still easier to scrape the tape than, do, than, than try to figure out how to do a fade, <laughs> you know? So strange, strange times. What were some of the early challenges, I guess, with, with DAT tape? I think the biggest thing was the whole discussion about level. For years and years and years, I, I didn't think there was any difference, and I believed it was the same concept. I've always, I've always recorded hot. You know, I try, to, I try to push it as much as I can. And for instance, when I was at, at Paramount, I, I had the, the tape companies in all the time, you know, looking for that latest, greatest new batch of tape that's going to take, you know, half a dB more level, right? <laughs> Before saturation. So I would record, I would still record pretty hot, you know, peaking, peaking at maybe, um, by today's standards, maybe minus six. Okay. Which, which to, to a lot of people is too, is too hot. But I, I still thought that you still had to get the most information on the, on the tape. And I don't know if I, I was, that was wrong or right or whatever, but it, it, you know, it worked for me at the time. We didn't use full scale meters still. We were, st- we were using uh, peak meters and uh, PPMs. And, um, you know, so I would just do what I normally did in analog and it seemed to work out okay. I eventually came to find out that one of the reasons for the discussion about about recording at a lower level was just a simple question of level matching. When you're in a DAW, let's take Pro Tools, for instance, the plugins want to see minus 20. So when you start lining up a bunch of plugins, if you match that level, your plugins will work properly. If you record hot and you're pumping minus six into the, you know, into the, the plugin that's looking for minus 20, you're already kind of overloading and making the plugin work a little harder than it has to. And that's not optimum. But I didn't get that until way later. <laughs> You know, and this is stuff that the current generation of mixers, they know all this stuff. They know all the math, you know, and we ju- we never did. There, there wasn't any math that sounded good or it didn't, you know, <laughs> you know. So I, th- I think it's I think it's I think it's really, really interesting. But I I think you can get away with both ways. You know, and then you just at, at at the end of the game, you just raise the level back up to whatever you want, whatever there's minus twenty three L you know LUF or whatever it is now. There's much more math now than there ever was, so I think that's interesting. When I started off in the studio, the same thing. We were still in analog, but digital was was there, and we were we would always master a half inch two track, and then we would go to DAT, but we would push it, yeah, one or two LEDs from clip, you know, just to maximize the the bit yeah i guess but you know then i also heard earlier on i had heard that the utilization of your full bit depth didn't kick in until a certain level you know so if you were recording like under minus 20 or well we started out at minus 12 was the reference level right and then we went to 18 and then we went to 20 is that about the the historical thing but if you were recording under that you weren't using all your bits and I'm like, what? I want to use all my bits. What? Give me those bits. You can't. No, no, no. You can't have my bits. It's like, what's a bit? <laughs> and I didn't understand the thing about bits until I went to a, this was an Elisa's demonstration at a NAM show. And they were, they had just rolled out their new series of ADATs that had 20 bit resolution and they were showing the difference between 16 and 20 and they had an ingenious demo and it was one piano note and they just boom one piano note and they just let it die out and at 16 bit you could hear where the computer couldn't tell if it was the note or if it was noise and cut it off 
And at 20, it just continued, you know, till you almost couldn't hear it. And then it cut it off. So it had much greater resolution. Okay, so to me now, everything, you know, picture and sound, I can kind of relate to it now because it's about resolution, you know. So that I thought that was very interesting. Now, uh, let's let's jump in and talk a little bit about some of the, the films you've worked on. Uh, one of the big ones was The Hunt for Red October. So tell us a little bit about your experience on that project. Well, production had run way over to the point where the vice president at Paramount called the entire post department into the theater one day and said, guys, we're under the gun because they already set a release date, of course. And so we basically had a little more than half the schedule that we originally had. And it was nights, days, weekends, just nonstop. Not only that, we had the U.S. Navy looking over our shoulders all the time asking, where'd you get that recording? Where'd you get that recording? Where'd you get that recording? You know, national secrets and stuff. I think the ping, the one ping only, I'm trying to remember how many, it was some ungodly number of pings that we had gone through before we found one that they would accept. And on the Foley stage, we created all these ambiences for the subs and some the same thing. Where'd you get that recording? And we're like, what recording? We just spent four days making this. <laughs> There's no recording. This is the recording. So they were very, very, very critical about what we could use and what we couldn't use. We were going like gangbusters. I mean, and I, it was a rush for me. I, I, I kind of, I don't mind long hours. I like long hours. I like, I like cranking, you know? So that was fun. And we were actually a little surprised when we got into the bake-off, you know? And I think what, ha- what it was, was a lot of the members, the Oscars had been dominated by big effects shows for the last several years. I think a, a little. I think everybody was a little tired of of the barrage. So you know, here's this hunt for Red October with a lot of little nice little subtle stuff, really subtle stuff, and we just boom, died kind of out of nowhere. And that was it was real. That was pretty exciting. I have to say. Yeah, and you guys, the sound effects team, won an Oscar, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I heard that uh, on set it was a very noisy set, so there was a lot of ADR after the fact. Well, yeah. I mean, poor Richard Goodman, who was the production mixer on on that show. I mean, I think that he might have gotten 10%, maybe 15, maybe as much as 20% of the dialogue. But they had, it was two stages long. So they, you know, they took the, they broke through to the second stage. It was a very, very long set. And they built a platform, a hydraulic platform that actually moved. So, for instance, in that scene where in Sean Connery's office, the shot of the teacup sliding down his little table in his office there or his, his room, that was actually sliding because the, they had tipped the whole thing like that. And that thing made a lot of noise and they had all kinds of equipment on the stage and it was just loud, loud, loud over there all the time. They were there. The shooting stage was right next to the to the my Foley stage. So I went over there and hung out with Richard a bunch, and he was like, "I, you know, I'm not getting anything." Oddly enough, years later, we kind of reprised that situation when we did Wind Talkers because I did Wind Talkers with him. This was a, that was a very interesting thing. Two production mixers, two two complete A crews, twelve cameras. And the way John Woo, John Woo shot this, he shot two scenes at a time. And he shot one scene here, but looking back with this in the back, this scene in the background. And then he shot another scene here with this scene in the background. Six cameras each. So he's knocking out 12 shots at a time. I remember the call sheet for the first day. <laughs> It had all this stuff that listed all the departments. Make sure you have this, make sure you have this, make sure you have this. The sound department, good luck. That's all it said. Because <laughs> it was just nonstop, you know, a barrage of, of pyro. So, but it, that was really fun too. Yeah, production went way over on, on Red October. And that's why we, we were kind of short on the, short on the post. Interesting. And, and then it turned out like it did with an award. 
Okay, so that leads right into, I think that Red October, I don't know if it, if maybe it's just my impression, but it changed things. Because what happened is the producers, even though they were in-house, the producers saw that not only can they do the job in half the time, but they can win an Oscar for it. So for me, after Red October, the conditions started changing. Things started changing. We got less time, okay, booked for the shows. Eventually, stuff like quad time went away. You know, triple time, golden time went away. Me, you know, all this stuff started changing. And it was less time, kind of less additional perks. So it was, it was, I think that was an interesting period, too. You also worked on Days of Thunder. So tell us a little bit about that process. We had a lot of people working, working on effects on that. We, we also had John Fasal working, on, I believe, on that, um, doing, a, doing a bunch of what used to be called sound design. That's another thing. The term sound design has, has changed over the years, too. Um, sound design used to be special effects that were, in a lot of cases, based on normal or real, let's say, real-life recordings that were electronically altered. Uh, we did some stuff also for the cars on that, but we did we did a lot of stuff for the pit crews and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the tires, the physical, the physical parts of the car, not the engine. I had um, been searching for a way to kind of expand the the scope of off-speed recording at the time to the pitch shifting, basically. But at, in those days, none of the pitch shifters were really that good. That the the best commercially available one, I think, was the Even Tide. And, and even with that, you could really only get plus or minus 20% clean with no artifacts. I mean, no artifacts. And so, and it, and it wasn't really that much of a, you know, of a range. So, you know, of course you can always do off-speed recording, but when you're doing stuff to picture, you have to change the, the projector speed as well. And... When you do that, we didn't have variable flexibility. You know, we could double the speed. We could half the speed. Having the speed was really tricky because you risked burning the film. Doubling the speed was okay, and you could do that easily enough. But it meant that your Foley artists, your performers, had to, had to do all this in half the time. You know, they didn't have time to really suss out because it, it happened fast. So you'd have to get something that was close, you know, move it back into sync, cut it, you know, and then and try to work with it there. And it wasn't very accurate. So we did a lot of experiments and I had a, I had a great engineer, Mark Lindauer, really, really helped me a lot. And he was, he was really interested in this. And we, we tried all kinds of things. We tried to do a variable thing with, with Jim Fulmus, tried to help us with that as well. And it just wasn't really working. And then one day the rep from Lexicon came by, Scott Esterson. We were talking about this, this problem. He goes, well, you know, we might have something that, that, that might help you. And it was, their, it was their commercial time compression expander for broadcast to, you know, to, to slightly alter the length of the shows. And it had a built-in pitch shifter. Now, this pitch shifter was absolutely unbelievable. And I talked Lexicon into building me one that didn't have the, the time compression expansion stuff. It just had the pitch shifter. Insane. 100% clean both ways. An octave up and an octave down. Totally clean. Latency, of course. But you just, you just slide it back into sync, you know? And it was it was amazing. We could do we could do all kinds of amazing things. That's how we got a lot of the stuff for Red October, and a lot a lot of the stuff in uh, Days of Thunder. All that stuff worked great in some of the Star Treks. 
you know, you could just get really big effects that you normally could not get. I, and I actually found out that I could split the channels and I could I could go into the left, come out of the left, go back into the right, and I could get almost 200%. It was just amazing. I come, out, I come to find out later that this whole algorithm was created by this guy at Stanford. John Delorto, I think his name is. A professor at Stanford who had figured out this um, pitch shifting algorithm. And it was like brilliant. And and Lexicon was the only guys that had it. And they didn't, they didn't even, it wasn't a feature. <laughs> it was just something that, you know, that went along with the, the time compression. Interesting. It was really, really cool. Well, uh, now also too, I guess you guys added a lot of sound effects and animal sounds with the car engines to try to help differentiate the characters and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they, yeah, they did a they did a whole they did a whole bunch of stuff. I I wasn't I didn't really do any of that, but I know I know Fasal did a lot, and and CC uh, CC uh, and George were were the supervisors. They were they were totally on top of this, and the sound effects guys were going crazy. They were doing all kinds of stuff. So yeah, animal animal sounds, and the thing about post effects is it's really all about layering. You know, and putting putting a bunch of different sounds together in, into into a, a comp, really. You know, and that creates the new effect. I mean, the chances of finding something in a library that you know that's going to work for every situation is is small. Um, even backgrounds, most backgrounds are comps out of two or three other things. You know, so. So once you get the layering thing together and you can, some people do it in frequency. They, they have a high element, a mid element and a, and a low element uh, and they combine it, you know, frequency wise. So there's a bunch of different ways to do it, but an, animal sounds are, are great for a lot of stuff. At one point you were working on multiple films at the same time, working at Disney, working at Paramount, and you were running back and forth doing post work on all of them, right? Well, that was, I think that was more, more at Disney when I was actually working on more than one show at, at once. Well, no, because I did pick up some nights for a while doing, doing some other shows. I, I don't know. I like to work a lot. I really liked it. You know, I don't know why. <laughs> I, it was a rush, man. And I loved, I loved Foley. I really love Foley. And, you know, I kind of I kind of got a lot of grief from my mentoring mixers for not going dubbing, for not going to the dub stage. You know, why you stay in the Foley stage? You should be you should be, you should be re-recording. You should be moving. You know? And I, I, I don't know. I just liked it so much. I wanted to stay. I liked I liked the way I felt and I liked what I could do. And, you know, I was getting some really great stuff and everybody was liking it. And so I, I just liked I liked staying there. Until I left and then had to relearn how to be a production mixer. That was that was interesting, too. So, You said you'd started off as a bass player, as a musician. How did that affect your recording in the film world? I think in two ways. I think uh, timing, it definitely helped. It helped my punch-ins. You see, in, in the old in the old analog days, it was it was all destructive punching in and out. Now you you know now you could just punch anywhere and move, and move it. But in those days, you you had to kind of come in at a certain at a certain place, and you know one of the toughest things to do with punch ins is like in the middle of a run, you know punching into footsteps in the middle of the run for a, a surface change, and I remember what. One of the guys who really taught me how to do it well was um, uh, a Foley artist named Ed Stidell. And Ed, another Chicagoan, we were doing the Good Morning Vietnam. And there's a scene where Robin Williams is he's on the tarmac and he's, he's running towards the plane. The plane is like way off in the distance and he's running towards the plane. And just, you know, you can barely see that he hits those, the metal stairs going up to the plane. And we're squinting, where the hell, you know, and, and Stidell turns around and he goes, all right. He used to call me Earl. He said, all right, Earl, we're, we're going to punch in for the stairs. And I'm like, what? We're going to what? 
So, you know, that made me much more critical about about the punch ins. And you had to you had to be able to punch in in between the beats, which were the steps. Right. So a musical knowledge really helped me on that. And I think the other way in which in which it helped generally is just a general sense of aesthetic. A lot of a lot of mixers that I know either are musicians or came from music. Perhaps they were they were music mixers first and then moved into into post. I think I think the musical sensibilities just helps you in a, give you in a general aesthetic sense of what what works and what doesn't. And that's a very difficult concept. What makes what makes something work as opposed to not work? You, you can't really describe it. You just know what it is because it feels good. It's a feel thing. And, you know, that's the hardest thing. You can't teach that, really. But you just, well, maybe through constant exposure and constant exposure. But that's something that, that every every mixer has to develop for themselves. But I think that, that uh, you know, the musicality helped a lot with that. How do you hone the skills of, say, new students, filmmakers that are coming up? And, you know, how do you bring about that, that sound awareness? It's tough. Um, first of all, you know, sound is always the last in the chain. You know, you're, you're, the, you're the last one to set up on production. You know, as soon as camera's ready, you know, you've got to be ready to go and you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> you know? In post, you can't really get on it until you've got a picture lock. Student picture editors are forever changing the picture. It's not an easy sell. The, you know, the, the students are looking sound. Well, Greg, where's the upside? <laughs> the upside is the joy that you get when it works. I can't think of, of other, a lot of other upsides except that you will work. If you're, you know, if you're good and your tracks aren't terrible, you'll work. But I think what it comes down to is they have to hear, they have to hear it and it's got to click. And once you hear it and it clicks, it drives you. And that's what I try to get out of them. If I get lucky and I get three or four per class that are interested, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm very lucky. You know, most of, most students want to be directors, of course, until they find out what a director really has to do. <laughs> they don't just sit back in the chair and say, you over there, you over there. OK, roll. It's a lot more involved in that. But I think it's I also think that production is a tougher sell than post. Post, you've got, you know, you, you can you can sit down, you can be at a computer, you can take your time. There's no rush. Well, not for them at this stage yet. You know, production, there's tension. There's, you know, you got to get it right. Does this sound okay or not? That's the biggest thing. Is this right or not? You know, oh, this doesn't sound right. Is there anything I can do about it? I don't know. That's a hard thing. So you just have to try and ex expose them. And I try to go on as, on some of the productions with them. But at the same time, I want them to, to discover things for themselves. And I want them to report these things that they discovered, even if they screw it up. You know, because I heard a great quote recently. Wisdom is nothing but the sum total of all our mistakes. And I thought, God, that's right. That's exactly right. Because everything I know, I know because I screwed it up the first time. <laughs> You know, and so I'm like, oh, no, that's not right. It's practically based in a, in a lot of cases. And but once they hear it and once they get it and once they achieve something, that's that's kind of when I can when I can work with them. But it is a tough sell. How can we improve the relationship between production and post-production? This is something that that's that I, I think is really, really necessary now the greater coming together in the old days, they were two totally separate things. And, and, you know, the production mixers view is, I don't know, it's leaving here. Sounds good here. You know, and the, the sound editors thing is, was there even a mixer on this shoot? 
Okay, so so the two sides are like opposed diametrically, but nobody knows the other's problems. And I think that now we have we can we can have a greater interchange of that. If you're an editor, you have to know the situations on the set. That could be the best track he could get. And it could not work. But it could be it's not because he's not trying. It's because that's the best he can get. Okay? So good. Flag this for ADR and move on. But at the same time, the production mixer needs to think about what's gonna happen in post. Not just have this sense of, well, they'll figure it out. Good sound reports are still a must. You know, on reality, you don't have that luxury. You know, you really don't, on any run and gun, anything, you really don't have the luxury of sound reports. You know, it's got to be a sit-down gig. But the more you can do, the more you can give notes to a, any kind of script supervisor, that anything that helps out the editor, the editor will love you. It's not uncommon for sound post guys to recommend production mixers to the production department, especially on, you know, for companies like uh, the WB, you know, Warner Brothers or any of the bigger companies that are doing a whole bunch of shows. The producers ask, you know, how are these tracks? You know, and if the editor says, these are the best he can get. I know these are the best he can get. He's doing, he's doing the best we can for us. We need this guy. And he'll work. And then the production mixer, you know, needs to go to post. What can I do for you? What do you need? You want more room tone? How about some wild dialogue? Will that work for you? Oh, I love wild dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me wild dialogue. They need to talk and not have this separation thing because it's not. And I think for me, this was the this was the realization after working both post and production is wait a minute, you have to have a holistic view of sound. Otherwise, the parts don't fit. And when you do, you say, ah, okay. And so now as a production mixer, I think more about post when I'm doing that. And if I'm cutting, then I think, oh, okay. Well, yeah, ooh, he must have been having problems there. Maybe he put something somewhere else and I'm looking for that extra material. But maybe the production mixer is saying, note extra material here you know with an arrow <laughs> so it's the cooperation that that needs to that needs to happen so any help that you can give them i think i think is a is a benefit to both sides that is true what is your philosophy when you sit down it's like here's a completed edit basically uh, when it comes to the film and you've you've got your input from the director what is your workflow for me i start i always start with the dialogue and I try to get I try to get the dialogue track nice and smooth and swinging and get the you know find my room tones find my fill, and then I try to find backgrounds after that because I I, I want to play the bed of the dialogue and the backgrounds and see how that whole thing moves together because then I know that I can add the effects and it's going to be okay because I've got the foundation. And to me, that's I consider the dialogue and the backgrounds to be the foundation. So once that once that's swinging, then I'll then I'll go back and start working on the effects. I think the temptation is to get sidetracked, is to get you know you're working the dialogue, you're working the dialogue, and you, you decide, oh, I sh I need an effect there, and you break off and you go and start looking for effects. Well, that takes your head out of that where you were in the dialogue. And I really think it's important to keep the continuity of thought and not break out of that. Finish the dialogue. Is it boring? Yes, of course it's boring. It's called work. You know, it has to get done. This is your foundation. All the pretty, all the pretty effects in the world aren't going to save it if you can't hear the dialogue. Dialogue is still king, in other words, okay? And then the reason I like to do backgrounds next is because if I have any problems in dialogue that I can't get around, I want to see what's the minimum I need to be able to mask that problem, okay? And so that's when I'll turn to, to the backgrounds and I'll start working with the backgrounds, seeing if I can 
a lot of times, even if, if you have a problem in dialogue, you have a noise or you have something in dialogue that you can't get around for whatever reason, just even, let's say you pick a suburban neighborhood, it's an exterior scene, you pick a suburban neighborhood, if you have a dog bark or something in there, you can put that dog bark over that problem in dialogue and you won't really hear the problem. You'll hear the dog. You know, I mean, it's just little little things like that. It doesn't work in all cases, but in a lot of cases, it does work. You have to think about things in layers and how the layers combine to make the totality. I'm still really old school, but I think that there's basic concepts that don't change. The gear changes and the gear changes faster than anybody can afford to keep up, I think. You know, I would be broke if I were if I were still in the in uh, production mixer, I would be broke because you're always buying this new and, and each new thing that comes out. I said, God, I got to have that. You know, <laughs> it's like it's nuts. But I think that the, the basic principles, if you still know the basic principles, you can get out of anything. All right. Well, one of our big questions we always ask is, what is your worst onset experience? Or it could be a post experience, but the worst onset experience. This will fall under the uh, heading of rookie, rookie mistakes uh, when you're no longer a rookie. We were shooting a commercial for a guy who was running for Senate. He was already he was already a represent a House representative, but he was running for Senate. And he was a really nice guy. We knew this guy and it was all it was all good. But my friend had rented a new camera and it was um, it was a new Sony beta cam. I think it was a. I think it was when the 400 just came out or something like that. And what Sony had done is they had, they had employed VU meters on their cameras for a long time. And this was the first one they went to a PPM instead of a view, but they didn't tell anybody. Okay. So, you know, I'm lining, I'm lining the thing up and every now and then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm listening to and I, could, I didn't have a return. For some reason, I didn't have a return. So I'm listening straight from the mixer. And of course, you know, that's that's like certain death, right? <laughs> and so everything sounded great, sounded great, sounded great. And, you know, at the end, of the, the end of the thing, we play it back. And it's just a little crunchy on the top end. And I'm like, what is that? You know, because I had lined the, um, the PPM up to zero instead of minus eight. Okay, so so it is overmodulating, not a, not by a lot, but by just enough to make that top end kind of crunchy and gritty. The whole thing was like that, so we had to reshoot the whole deal. And there was actually there was a time before that that was even a little bit of work, a little bit worse. I ran line output from the mixer into mic in on the camera for the whole thing. Okay, you, you know what I'm saying. Line level out from the mixer to mic level in on the camera. Okay. Total, total rookie mistake, you know? And it's like, oh my, how could you be so stupid? Because again, I wasn't listening to the camera. I wasn't listening to my recorder. I was listening to my mixer and gosh, how beautiful it sounded. So that's another one thing I've learned is that you... No matter how long you've been in the business, you're not infallible. You know, you're always susceptible to some problem that can come along. You, for no reason, the universe just reaches out and taps you on the head. Hey, man. But I found that the worst thing to do is not say anything, not fess up. You got to fess up right away. If you take a beating, you take a beating. And I did take a beating one time. I took it very early in my career. I took a beating from Jim Bourgeois. We were doing a show and I was an assistant editor. And in the old days, when you're building tracks, it's like building one track at a time. And, and wherever you didn't have anything on your timeline, you had to fill with leader, you know, so that it maintained time in the scope of the whole reel. And we used to use what we called light struck as the fill leader. And this was exposed camera film, basically. So it had emulsion on one side was smooth and the other side had emulsion on. And you always used to be able to test it by, you know, putting your lips on the film and your lip would stick to the side with, with the emulsion. So you'd know if it was A-wind or B-wind. 
Well, I had mislabeled a role or somebody had mislabeled. I'm not sure if I was my fault or whatever, but I didn't check. And I, I was in a hurry and I just built all these tracks and rush out to the, out to the dumbing stage. And Jim is out there with the mixers waiting for me. You know, I dump the tracks off with the machine room guys run down behind the console, sit down and go, okay. You know, and I, I think I was, I think I was 19 at the time. So they load it up, they go off and they, they go running. And it'd be like five, four, beep. Hi there, everybody. The whole thing comes to a stop. Mixers get on the intercom. Boys, clean the heads, please. You should be cleaning the heads between every gig, okay? Just clean the heads. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, right away, sir. Clean the heads. Load it up again. Start again. Hi, everybody. Everything comes to a stop. Mixers say, guys, I'm not going to tell you again. Get those heads clean. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sorry. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, these poor guys. These guys are getting killed. So they go, they do it the third time. We go for a third time. Same thing happens. The mixers get on the, get on the intercom and say, boys. You know, they're very stern. And I'm like cringing. And then you hear from the machine room, well, yes, sir, sorry, sir, but, but I, I'm sorry, but it, it appears that the tracks are, are, are leadered backwards, meaning that the film had been flipped, and now the emulsion side was against the heads, and every time it passes against the heads, it's gumming the heads all up. And that's why it's sounding like that when we come into track. Suddenly, all eyes on me, and I'm like, huh? Improperly leadered? No, impossible. Impossible. It was. Jim made me pay to rebook the time on the dubbing stage because they couldn't wait. They had another client coming in. And that was, that represented about two months salary. And I was so mad. And I didn't get it until years later. And it was the best lesson I ever learned. You know, this is about responsibility. This was your job. If you do it wrong, it's not okay. Somebody has to pay. If you screw up, you must pay. And I think that that stuck with me the whole time. I mean, fortunately, the paying that I that I had to do whenever I did screw up was just, you know, bruises to my ego and my pride. You know, it, it didn't represent a lot of physical cash. Again, it's always better to say something and, and take the heat. And actually, the, produ you know, you're, the producers will respect you more for that. Because everybody screws up every now and then. Is the difference between sound and camera is if you're a camera guy and you screw something up, oh, that's okay, we'll do it again. Oh, yeah, oh, no, no problem. You're a sound guy and you screw it up. It's like, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Oh, gosh. The follow-up question to that is, have you ever forgotten any equipment that was critical on set? I, probably nothing that I couldn't work around, but it did get to the point where I, I, I bought a van and everything was in the van. And I went and I went everywhere in the van. You, you know, even if it was a sit-down interview, nothing, I, you know, I, I went everywhere in the van. I had everything with me at one time. You know, it was... It was probably a, you know, I, I, I forgot a couple of adapters or I forgot something that it was nothing that was critical to my chain. The auxiliary things that, that would have been nice or something that I, I couldn't give the director that, you know, that I had to kind of work around to make it work or something, you know, nothing crippling. That's pretty good, at least on my part. <laughs> good boy, good boy, good boy. Well, uh, you had mentioned Jimmy Seiska earlier, who was a guest on the show. Yeah. And uh, he wanted me to ask you about Butch and Les. Oh, gosh. He said, who are these guys? Okay. Butch and Les Wolf. Two sound editors. Les is an a Emmy Award winner. He is, he is Mr. Animation. He did, all, he did all the Nickelodeon stuff for years. All the cartoons, all the stuff. Fantastic dialogue editor 
did tons of tons of features. We 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 worked together on a bunch of things. Butch Butch was a great uh, great effects editor and foley editor, and also Butch had the ability to save a lot of things by being able to cut what we call pre dubs, and pre dubs were sub mixes we could say. And the thing about cutting cutting pre dubs is they existed on in, in those days uh, four track film, magnetic film. And in order to cut it with no pops, you had to cut it on an angle, which meant that you could not cut everything in sync because that would require a straight cut. You had, to, you had to use an angle cut. So he had just this right touch where he could move that cut around and you could only do it within the confines of one sprocket at a time, a quarter frame at a time. That was your smallest increment. No subframes like we have today. Nudge, 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 nudge. None of that. You know, quarter frame either way. And he was magic. He was just absolute magic. But they were cousins. Their parents, two brothers married two sisters. Classic, classic stuff. And they were they were just really, really great guys. They started a school way out in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Okay, it's in a place called Saipan. Probably, let's see, three hours due east of Manila, Philippines, out in the middle of the ocean. You've heard of the Marianas Trench, the deepest place in the ocean? These are the Mariana Islands, which are which are right along that that trench. And Guam is the is the base island, and it goes up from there. Um, Saipan being the next one of the next two in the middle of nowhere. So they asked me to come out, and I came out. We were just having all kinds of fun. It was so great. We did so much stuff with these kids. We had so many shows going, and it was just fantastic. They were so motivated, and that was my first my first foray into teaching. And that's actually where I learned how much I didn't know about teaching. Because you can't just spew out a bunch of a bunch of information to them and have them, you know, take notes and everything's good. You have to explain this stuff in a way that makes sense and is non-technical. It's really it's much more difficult than I ever thought it would be, the teaching part. But we did yeah, we did a we did a bunch of stuff. We had a we had a small little production company there as well. And we did. We went out and did a, a bunch of bunch of gigs. We did a ton of, uh, for instance, uh, Japanese national commercials uh, production, and that was a trip because they operate in a completely different way. And when they get ready to shoot, I mean, it's not okay. Everybody ready? Okay. All right. This is uh, one Apple Bravo. Take two. Clap. It's not like that at all. It happens in a, in the blink of an eye. And if you're not careful, you're gonna miss the you're gonna miss the slate because they're just really fast, and the and the slates they use are these tiny little things like this. It's it's, it's kind of cute in a way, but I got used to it because after every take, the talent would leave the set, and not stay there and do another take right away. No, the talent would leave the set. They discuss it. They change something. They'd come back. They do another take. They go away. So I would just watch the Umbrella Brigade. And you'd see all these umbrellas going this way and all these umbrellas going that way. And I knew whether they were coming or going or what was happening. And as soon as they started coming back towards the set, I just hit record. <laughs> I'm not going to get caught, you know? So that was, that was pretty funny. Then Les and I, Les and I went to the Philippines. There was a guy there, a, um, a very wealthy, a very wealthy German who had built a studio in Cebu. And he had two. He had two shooting stages, full post, uh, ADR stage, Foley stage, dubbing stage, and those rooms were not finished. So he hired less than me as a consultant to go and basically finish those rooms. And th this is at a place called Bigfoot in Cebu, and this is where I met Jimmy. We did those rooms. It was supposed to be a six-month consulting contract. I was there like almost seven years. <laughs> Uh, with with less too, and we did we did some amazing things. We did a um, we did a feature that was in Chinese, but the actors were all from Hong Kong, and the, and it was supposed to be Mandarin Chinese, not Cantonese, which is the Hong Kong dialect. 
And none of them, none of them liked their performance at all. So we got them, we got them all to come to the Philippines and we looped the entire show cover to cover everything. And they loved it. We did it in three days. They were just so on it. Boom, 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 boom. And it sounded great. The room sounded great. And the show sounded great. And, and we played it back. And it was just like this perfect dialogue. You know, we laid it in. It just really, really worked. I was about to submit it for a uh, MPSE award. <laughs> but they changed their mind at the last minute. And the director, there was some production something that he couldn't live without and that and that destroyed the, the whole thing and then there was something else over here they could and, and so the perfect adr job went you know went down the tubes very rapidly but we had a great time doing it but th yeah two very good very good editors and good friends and yeah and and jimmy was jimmy was good friends with them too so oh that's great now you're you're teaching now i am and what subjects are you teaching the students? I have sound one and sound two. Sound one is production, sound two is post, basic. And, you know, it's intro, intro two. And then I teach, uh, I teach three what we call practice or media project classes. They're practice periods, basically. Uh, and they, they have to form groups and they have to get clients and they have to, they have to knock out product. Uh, media project one is, is all about commercials, industrials, music videos, that kind of stuff. Uh, Media Project 2 is short films. And Media Project 3 is uh, more advanced industrial kind of work because that's the majority of the work here. Okay. You know, if some of our listeners wanted to get into location sound or maybe they're just starting out, what kind of recommendations or encouragement could you give them? And to me, the most important thing is get the mic in the right place. And to me, it doesn't matter what mic you have. If you can't, you know, if you can't afford to spend 20 grand you know, get an electret, you know, get something, you put a battery in and go, but just get your ears used to hearing where that sweet spot is. Work it and learn that sweet spot, burn it into your brain, you know, and then, and then catch up on the rest and just make sure your recording doesn't overload. You can get all bogged down in the, in all the tech and, you spend all this money in the tech and, and you know, it's like, well, I spent 20 grand on all this gear. Why is the, why is it, why are my tracks aren't good? You know? So don't think about that. Think about getting the right sound. Think about using what you have to get, to make it the best it can be, you know? So it's pleasing to you. So I, I would say, take the time to learn, take the time to learn the basics. Because if you end up being good and, and even the first things you do, if, if they're decent, you'll work. You will work. Train your ear. Start listening to records. Pick out the guitar part. Pick out the keyboard part. Pick out the bass part. Pick out the hi-hat part. Get more and more critical in your listening so that you can differentiate between you know, not only the frequencies, but, the, you know, the timbres, the, the intensities, the dimensionality, that's a word, but hone your, hone your skills that way. And the other thing is stop, be quiet for like five minutes and write down everything that you hear. And you'd be amazed how much stuff there is that you hear that your ears just filter out on a daily basis. But you have to start hearing those things now because the mic does not filter any of that out. And you can't be overloaded when you go, oh, God, what are all those noises? You have to know what they are so you can, you know, so you can make judgments about what to avoid. Learn your mic patterns. Learn how to use a microphone to reject the sound you don't want just as much as to capture the stuff that you do want. In, in location dialogue, that's critical. Using the pattern to get rid of what you don't want. And a lot of people don't think of it like that. I think it's, to me, it's, it's critical. All right, Greg. Well, it's, uh, it's been wonderful talking with you today. And as we start to wrap things up, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, you can, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Greg Curta. You can email me if you want, gcurta at gmail. Those would probably be the best, the best two ways. And I'm, I'm happy to answer you. I'm happy to discuss this stuff. I love it. 
All right. I want to say uh, thanks to Greg Curta for being on the show today. Thanks, Greg. Hey, thank you, Michael. My pleasure. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcast, and for Android users, check out Google Podcast. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.